Whenever you're ready, boss. Well, it's a special episode of The Pivot. It's not very often you get to be around greats at the position that have something as big as Malcolm Jenkins has to say today. So first off, man, I want to say welcome to The Pivot. Thank you for being here. And now it's your show. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Uh, yeah, I'm excited to announce that after 13 seasons, I'm retiring from the game of football. It's been a long, long journey, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the right time for me to do that transition. Hold up, limitless, take a summit cap, pin in it. I father here to witness it. Got my people feeling militant. Way I'm feeling, get me up. On the mission, get me up. No one me, I got the key. On the vision, I can trust. Trust, limitless, take a summit cap, pin in it. I father here to witness it. Got my people feeling militant. Way I'm feeling, get me up. On the mission, get me up. Man, it's a special day on The Pivot. Yes. We got Malcolm Jenkins, newly retired Malcolm Jenkins, Freddie T, Channing, man. This is going to be a special show. I've been, been around this dude a, a lot of times, had great conversations with him. I think it's going to be dope for the world uh, to get to know him better. But I just want to tell y'all, we went to the store to get some Happy Dad today. Obviously, we needed it for the show. Dude runs up to me, and he's like, hey, man, are you from The Pivot? Which is weird to me, because like I've been on TV the last eight years. You know, and he's like, are you from the pivot? I was like, yeah. He's like, man, I just want you to know that y'all show is changing lives. Wow. And that's obviously not necessarily what we set out to do, but he's a high school coach. And he said his whole team, they, he sat them down and, and made them watch the show. So just to both of y'all, man, I want to say thank you, you know, for your contributions to this, man, allowing me to be a part of it. Um, and with that said, man, what you going to do now? You know, you, you shut it down, bro. Yeah. It's, it's, you can kick your feet up. You can chill. You know what I mean? Malcolm Jenkins don't have to wear the suits with the bandit collar shirt no more. I'm still man. gonna wear the suits. That's, that's <laughs> just that was that wasn't for football. That was just, that's just my style. But uh, kicking my feet up is is something I don't know how to do yet. And so for me, I'm like I've been working the last five years to really build you know my own kind of infrastructure around me, build up businesses and things. Now that I'm done with the game, I got something to transition into both on the business side. So we're doing venture capital investments, we got franchising, real estate, uh, but then also, you know, more of the exploratory kind of projects where I'm building up my production company, working on scripted and non-scripted content. And that's been oddly rewarding because one thing that's about me is like, I love to teach. You hear me talking about stuff all the time, but I don't like to preach. And I don't like to, you know, as a football player, oftentimes you're only afforded the sports media. Right, and so, and then most times they don't have the time to break down the real issues. They'll give you one line and then write whatever they want to write. And so, one of the things that I've not struggled with, but dealing with that frustration over the last four or five years is like, how do I own my own voice and tell my own stories the way that I want to do it? And I started with a documentary called Black Boys, where we broke down just the identity of, of black boys and, and their uh, humanity and how it's under attack as early as grade school and throughout. And that was an amazing project to be on. Uh, I was executive producer on that. And since then, you know, writing has been one of the things I really enjoyed. So I've been in development right now. We have a, a documentary on black wealth, uh, but then also more creative things that uh, unscripted or scripted comedy that I'm working on with a writer named um, Chuck Hayward. He wrote for uh, WandaVision and for Dear White People. And so that's been, it's been fun to dive into those, you know, that space. And I was, uh, I'm just sitting here thinking, man, and I tease people a lot when they ask me what I'm doing now. 
after I retired, and I always say career change. Mm -hmm. I don't like to call it retirement, because mm -hmm. I feel like if this is what retirement feels like, I'm never going to retire. <laughs> but I'm sitting here listening to you, and I really think that we should get the whole, that, that term retirement out of athletes' brains. Yeah. Because we retire at such young ages, mm -hmm. and there's so much more after football that we can do. So I really think just just listening to you talking about your endeavors, you know, the things that you're doing, you're investing, businesses, you're, you're, you're networking, you're partnering with uh, people in different companies, and you're doing so much. I, I really think we should try and push to get rid of that term, man, because there's much more out there. Yeah, and I think one of the funny things I think that I'm struggling with now, even as I'm facing, you know, not retirement, facing this new career change, is that in football, like, for the last four years, I've been the old dude. <laughs> and like, you know what I mean? You start to buy I've into it too, where I'm We've like, been there. Yeah, I'm like, I'm, I believe it now. I'm like, You're the OG. I'm, I'm the OG. Yeah. Right? I start calling you OG the locker room. <laughs> and so, yeah, so when you start thinking about starting over and getting into a new job and having the same success, you, you know, we have a standard for ourselves. It's like, damn, I got to start all the way over, like, as a rookie. And I feel like I'm old. So it's like, ah, that gives me a little anxiety. And realistically, you know, I got people on my team like, bro, you're 34. Right. Like, most people are just starting their careers. Right. And so, you know, it, we definitely need to change a little bit of that mentality because, you know, I can feel it. Even though I have all of these things lined up, I'm like, I, you're still stepping away from the safe haven, the, the thing that you've known how to do your whole life, you can do in your sleep, to go try and be a, a novice at something new. Yeah. You played at an extremely high level for 13 years. What was that moment? Was it standing in the back of practice, sort of looking over everything and, you know, just saying, this is it? Like, did you have that moment? I forget what week it was. It was probably week 10 or 11, and you just, you're walking out to practice for another day. And every day I step on the practice, I'm, I pray, and I'm like, you know, give me the enthusiasm, the, the attention to detail I need to get better today. And I start realizing how many times have I gone through that routine of just practice, like, playing since you're seven years old, how many training camps, how many, you know, practice reps? And you start to realize that the game is the fun part and the easiest part of the entire process. It's the work, the off-seasons, the, the film study, the time away from your family, all of those things. I know I have to do to play and be the player that I need, that I want to be. But, and it's like, once you find yourself trying to cut corners to do some other stuff, it's, it's time at that point. And how many times you, did you go back and forth with that? You say week 10. Yeah. Week 12, you feel different. Week 14, like, what, were you struggling with it's, that? It's, it's usually, it's, you know, I go, Sunday is the game, feel great. You play, you have a good time. It's like, all right, cool. Monday, Tuesday, you getting back, and then it's Wednesday, and you're in full pads. Mm -hmm. And you're like, damn. <laughs> like, you know. I'm still running 907. Yeah, like, man, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's and and the way I play the game is just so I, I put so much into it. Like I've had coaches begging me to take reps off in practice. Like, dude, you know, you need to take it off. And I'm like, I can't. Like, this is what I this is my process of how I get to be the player that that y'all want me to be. And it's just, you know, that's a process that I can't cheat. When you look back at those things from your career, the the player you were, the person that you've been in many of your communities and communities outside of your own that you played in, what are some of the things that you're most proud of from your 13-year career, whether it be on the field or off? For me, at some point in my career, I realized, like, I want to be known for more than just playing ball. Because just playing ball is going to be over with at some point in time, which it is now. 
and you're going to have new names. The, the news cycle doesn't stop because I stopped playing ball. So it was like, well, who are you going to be outside of this athlete, you know, who, who can play football really well? And it's like, I've always been instilled, it's been instilled in me with my parents from, you know, being young. It's like, always make the thing, the places you call home, like it's your responsibility to take care of it, to make it what you want it to be. And I've always took pride in, in really investing uh, my time into the places that I call home. So whether it's at Ohio State, uh, New Orleans, Philadelphia, back home in New Jersey, all of those places I, I've invested in. And I think I've done more than I ever really thought I can do, to be honest. And so the thing I'm most proud of, I think, is leaving really a blueprint for athletes behind me. So if you want to not only have you know, success, you have my 13-year career, you can look at kind of the things I've done and I've given every drop of knowledge that I've had to any teammate you know, that's been around me. But it's also, you know, I look at guys like Rodney McLeod, who was my right-hand man in Philly. I was to him what Roman Harper was to me, like where I can give him not only stuff on the, on the field, but he wants to start his own brand. Okay, I've done that. This is how I can do it. He wants to be more of a, I had to leave Philly. Somebody has to take over kind of that mantle of social justice and be that voice. Like I was able to prepare him to step into that role. And so when you start to see, when I look at the vehicles um, that I've been able to create and how many other people I've been able to empower. I think that's what I'm most proud of. It's like when you build something only on your back, when you're done, that's done. And so what I've always tried to do is create something sustainable that includes other people, that when I'm done and can move on to something else, that that movement keeps going, somebody else picks up the mantle and keeps it going. Man, that thought, like, even that, and I know RC did it and you talking about it. I know if even Freddie did it. I didn't do it. Like... Are y'all outliers? Cause like try, trying to teach kids, like trying to teach the young guys like the future of life and going on and moving on. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't that guy on the team. I wasn't that all pro dude. I was trying to get my check yeah. and slide to the strip club. Like <laughs> I wasn't worried about that. Yeah. It's like is that thought that y'all, you know, when talking to RC, talking to y'all OGs, like is that thought? Do you think that's an outlier thing with the guys that watch this show, the young guys that watch this show? Like I don't, I don't, I think what y'all are talking about right here. It's not a normal thing in the NFL locker room, be honest. I think you grow into it. Yep. Obviously, there were points in my career where I couldn't do that, right? Where I didn't feel comfortable doing that. You know, I'm undrafted, and so for me, it was about making a team every year. You know, and then you become a player rep, and then there be, there, there's more issues that arise, and you live more life. It's not that you get to a point and you're so smart. You just have made enough mistakes that you know how to try to keep people from doing the same thing, right? It's the same way with your kids. You know what I'm saying? Like, your, your kids don't necessarily know that something they're about to touch is hot. But you've lived enough life to know, and you don't want them to have to get burned to understand that. So it was the same thing with me and the players. And I did feel that it was a responsibility because I had a guy like Omar Stoutmeyer who was like, hey, I'm going to tell you where to buy your first suit, and I'm going to take you to Bible study, and I'm going to do all those things. And he wasn't a Hall of Famer. But as far as a human and a player, to me, that's one of the dudes I remembered. And I always wanted to have cats look at me that way, like, man, the OG taught me or, or left me or, or led me in some sort of way. I think you hit it on the, on the head. It's not that we show up in a locker room, we're the smartest ones there. It's like, I, I made enough mistakes to tell you, don't do this. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like, I've, I've made those mistakes. It probably wasn't until I got to, I think my whole, the first five years of my career in Philadelphia, I mean, in, in New Orleans, really taught me everything I needed to know 
to become who I was in Philly. And it's like, so I was the young cat looking at all of these cats, the Roman Harpers, Drew Brees, John Vilma, and watching, you know, them. I'm doing the same thing. I'm focused on football. That's it. A little bit of community stuff here or there, you know, but I was still focused on, like, building my brand, getting these checks, playing. And then you get that first bump in the road where a team don't renew your contract and you're on the streets for a couple of days. You're like, time out. Nah, all right, hold on. I got I to gotta, I gotta invest more in me. If they if they go discard me that easily, it's like, well, I got to take what I do in a, is in its totality. Like, I've got to take that serious to invest in myself because I realize how this game's going to use you up. Like, you can waste time and play around. The game's going to use you up and spit you out. And so when I got to Philly, I made it a point to, like, do the things that I wanted to do. And then it's like that example of doing it, like, loudly, too. I don't have to go recruit guys. Like, guys will pay attention to how you move in the locker room, and then they'll want to know, oh, how'd you do that? And then that's the opportunity to, like, really unpack those things. Like, man, this is what you need to be doing with your money. These are the mistakes I made. Hey, look out for these hurdles. Like, young players especially, too, that are trying to navigate the business of football. You know, we talk about family and, you know, all this stuff. You give everything you got. You got to brainwash yourself to be, you know, team first and do all of these things. But then most players hit that wall when they get that first taste of business. Yeah. And they're like, hold on, I thought we was brothers till, <laughs> till brothers. Like, yeah, we brothers till your contract's up. <laughs> I, say, I tell people all the time. They exchange numbers. You have to keep going. But you, you mentioned family right here. Going from New Orleans to Philly, you know, you're, you're this much closer to Jersey. How was that dynamic? More ticket requests, you know, family shooting at you? You know, I actually, yeah, it's all of the things you would think about. More ticket requests, is you closer to home. But I needed it, to be honest. Like, I went to Ohio State for four years. Mm-hmm. So I'm eight hours away from the crib. Um, then I go to New Orleans for another five. So it's been a minute before I've been back home. And so, and, and then leaving New Orleans the way I did, like, I had so many doubts about who I was as a player. I'm like, man, I'm, I, I'm really dealing with contemplating if, this might be my last contract. I might be out of the league. And so coming back home, or at least close to home, put me around people that reminded me of who I was and how I got there. So, you know, I'm closer to my high school coach where, like, I've been working with him since I was a kid. So having him in my ear, my friends in my ear, just really gave me the confidence and, like, reminded me, like, I'm going back to how I got it out the mud. Like, going back to who I was. At the end of the day, I'm going to compete. I'm going to talk shit and let the cars fall where they may. But then it also put me back around, like, my support group, my team. And so when it started talking about building things off the field, like, I'm closer to the people I can trust. And so we started to build our own company where I'm now empowering, you know, my friends to be, uh, to, to manage, you know, my business endeavors to help me with these other uh, startups and you know, so to, it was like going back to Philly was the best thing I needed at that point in time. I mean, obviously, you know, my career the next five years really kind of took off. And you just talked about that you had doubt in yourself. That that surprised me. Like, bro, you were a pro bowler. Yeah. Well, like, once I got to Philly, <laughs> <laughs> football has told you that you're one of the best. You have that doubt, and then you talked about your mistakes you made that young guys can learn from. RC asked you about your best accomplishments. What were some of them downtime? What were some of the mistakes you made that you could have teaching points with? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that I wish I would have, like, understood earlier is I came in and I wanted to be super humble. I wanted to learn, like, not be heard and just, you know, soak up things. 
And I think what that did was took away some of my bite as a player. And I also started looking at other cats, like the, the legends of the game, the Palomalus, the Ed Reeds, and I'm trying to do what they do, right? I'm looking at their film. What about Ryan? Ryan played a style of football I couldn't play. He didn't care about his body. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't care. He don't care. He was concerned with your rotator cuff. <laughs> I had a corner background. I was a physical cat out of Ohio State, but the way he played, I turned on the tape, it's Troy and it's him. I'm like, he plays too wild. I, like, he don't care about his body. You're not going to last that long. I seen Bob Sanders and all of these cats. Yeah. It was out of necessity, fellas. Like, if, hey, if, if, if they thought I had all the other stuff, they probably would have drafted me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, right. so what I did was I learned what worked for me, and that was what it had to be. And I got 13 of them. You know oh, what I mean? Threw, you threw that little ass body. Right? <laughs> but I'm going to tell you what, though. I do not suggest it. Because <laughs> I feel it now. That's a tough way of living, yo. Yeah. And then I'm watching Troy, and I just don't understand what he's doing. Like... It's hard to just turn on the tape and understand, you know, a, a free safety is now jumping an out route. Like, I'm, I'm, I can't fathom this. It looks like he's Guess what? Neither could I. Exactly. And I was out there. <laughs> See, exactly. So it's like, and, I'm, and I look at, you know, uh, Ed Reed, and it's, it's like his ability to just ball hawk and manipulate quarterbacks in the post was just the best we've ever seen. And for me, I'm not a free safety. I was a corner learning the position, and then really I was bored with free safety. Like, you sit, it's the best seat in the house. You're sitting 20 yards deep, right. watching everybody else make plays, and then me, I'm like, when I want to go make a play, I'm taking unnecessary chances, give up a big one. And there was one point where I think PPF rated me the worst safety in the league. And this was in Philly? This was in New Orleans. In New Orleans? This was tw 2012 at Bounty Gate stuff. The worst? The worst. And you, and you followed that? Oh, no, well, I, I mean, it's social media. It's like you ain't going to send it. They send it to yeah, you. Yeah, they just send it to you. Tag your name in it. Like, yeah. Oh, they tagged you. <laughs> tag you like, hey, Jesus. My thing is the worst. Great. <laughs> and it's like, you know, dealing with that, you like, and I was a first-round pick as a corner who really didn't break the starting lineup my first year. It was uh, Jabari Greer and Tracy Porter were really our starters. And so the second year, I had to move to safety. And so everything was just kind of like doubt for me. Like, damn, it's not working out how I want to. I'm looking at Bonte Davis, and he's the first-round pick at that time. He's balling. Other cats are, are doing well. And I'm sitting there like, I'm still struggling to find my identity. And so that last year in, in New Orleans, Rob Ryan became the D coordinator. And he was a, I convinced him to let me play the nickel. And that changed everything, because I think that was, that was what I was fit for. And I didn't realize at the time, again, I was trying to be like all these other players, and I didn't have the skill set to do it. And I was ignoring my own skill set. And so playing a nickel allows you to do everything. You play corner, safety, yep. linebacker, doing all of those things. And it's like once I got in that position is when I found my home. Got to Philly, and they allowed me to do it. And it was, the, especially when I got to Jim Schwartz's defense, Playing a nickel position was one of the things that, like, really brought my career home. You keep mentioning that Philadelphia was where your career skyrocketed. You know, you've been three-time pro bowler, obviously a guy that became one of the premier players at the position. But I kind of want to, I guess, pivot away from that a little bit because that was also, too, where people got to know Malcolm Jenkins, the man, right? You were more vocal. You did, you know put your face and put your voice to a lot of things that didn't necessarily always keep Malcolm Jenkins' money as the top priority or Malcolm Jenkins' perception to the outside world as a top priority. How were you able to find that voice in Philly? And was that something that was always in you? 
I think it's definitely something that was always in me. I think at every level, whether it's from high school all the way through, I've been a vocal leader. But most of the time, I think the content out of my mouth was more about the sport. When I got to Philly and you start to, the, the life starts to accumulate on you, right? You start to see a lifetime worth of injustice, of shit happening that you're just like, I don't, like, why is this happening? And I think... When I got to Philly, I realized that my play had escalated my platform, and it was like, oh, I, I think I really can, can have a voice and, and actually do something. And actually was in an organization that, like, I had a lot of support. Like, a lot of people will raise my voice up, but I'm like, it was other cats in the league that didn't have what I did. They didn't have a, a team owner who was open to me speaking and saying whatever I want about social issues. I was also surrounded by Michael Bennett, uh, Chris Long, a bunch of guys in the locker room who were, were also vocal. So it's not like I was just the only one and I'm dealing with the media and the team. I had support from the team. I had support from my teammates. And so that, to me, gave me the environment to really, like, see how far I could take it. There were no limitations on it. And I think that was one of those things that I hope other guys were, were watching is to, like, this is how you... This is a model of how you push the limits as far as um, having an effect on your city. And it's, and, it's, and it's really not hard to do when you do it collectively. It's real hard to do and it's scary to do when you're doing it by yourself. Right. I always give people or guests their flowers when they come on the show. <laughs> Freddie Flowers. Sometimes Freddie Flowers. I just got a new nick. It used to be Freaky Freddie. Now it's Freddie Flowers. I like Freaky Freddie. I, I, no, I, I like I'll, that I'll take that. But uh, I do want to commend you guys in Philly. Uh, for stepping up to the plate, man, and, and addressing those issues. We here know how tough it can be to step out against the NFL. Big business, you know, they, they try to align things a certain way. They create these different rules, and if you break them, they hit the pockets. But I want to commend you guys for having that courage. But I also want to read a quote that uh, I pulled up. You said, we have social capital and can literally change the dialogue and the conversation worldwide. With that, Tell me, how do you feel when people say shut up and play? I mean, it's, at this point, it's a, it's a cliche right now. But, you know, before, I always tell people this, you know, I, every now and then I'll get in a conversation. Most of the time it's with, like, older white men who sometimes they don't know who I am and they'll start talking about the anthem stuff. I'm like, I don't, I don't, I didn't like what happened. I didn't like the protests. It's different time and places to do that stuff. And I say, okay, well... Let me ask you this. Do you have a problem when the NFL did a whole month to talk about domestic violence? Mm. Usually not. Do you have a problem when they talk about cancer awareness and all these things for a whole month? Not at all. We do a whole month salute to service. Mm -hmm. Nobody has an issue. It's only when we start talking about black shit that is like, ah, nah, man, choose your place and time. And so for me, it's like when that's the logic, you can't really buy into it. And, and what I've learned, too, is that whenever you're trying to create some kind of change or you're trying to change the direction of, like, how things are going, there's always going to be people who say shit to you just to get you distracted. Correct. And so, like, even when it, the shut up and dribble and all those things came out, athletes started talking less about the issues and more about their rights as athletes to speak up. When our rights to speak up have never been in question. People can say what they want, but, like, you say what you want, and that's that. That's that. But it was a distraction because we spent a ton of time now talking about the athletes when the athletes are trying to talk about people. 
And I think, you know, that's been one of the things that I've always tried to be mindful about is don't allow distractions to keep you from what you're trying to get accomplished. And did I, you, Freddie, you pulled at your phone so I can pull out my note. I'm a note taker, Malcolm. <laughs> Ain't no problem. <laughs> Pen and paper. He's such a throwback. We, we talked to this guy really quick, Malcolm, about he didn't have apps to check in his flights. No, no. He didn't have TSA pre-check. Pre he has nothing. He didn't have he Uber. Didn't have he did not have Uber. How you get around? Are you catching cabs? I was catching cabs, bro. You go to any number, get the area code, and put whatever the area code, 77777, and 444444, and the cab come. Yeah, the cab, it stank. The motherfucker stank. <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is, but yeah, man, I'm, I'm an old school dude, so I keep notes. But... The, pro, the anthem protest, something you spoke on, we all saw it. That was a national thing we saw. But then the Capitol Hill, you met with legislators, some stuff people didn't see. The op-ed that you wrote in the Washington Post, the, uh, you, signed, you signed a letter to Roger Goodell explaining your side of things and what you want to do. Like, your, your activism was big time, multiple foundations, and I, you know, we're going to give you a chance to speak on that later. But, like, where did it hit? Because we saw, and we'll speak about the Eric Reid stuff with the Colin Kaepernick thing, but, like, it hit you at a certain time. My question, like, it hit you at a certain time, bro, that I need to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. What happened there? When did it hit you? I would say it was, so all of that started in 2016. Um, and I would say July, before the season, you had um, Alton Sterling and Philando Castell get killed by the police. And so one of the things that I did, it was just like, yo, I've had enough. So in Philly, I organized few of my teammates, some local leaders that I knew, and then uh, reached out to the former police chief. He was the police chief at the time. And we just had a sit-down meeting, and I'm like, how do I, what, what is the problem? I want to hear from the community, like, what is the issue, you know, that, that the communities need? But I also want to hear from law enforcement, what are the challenges? What do you think? Do you even agree that there's an issue? And through those conversations, I realized that athletes... Our, and that's why I said, we have social capital that can change everything. The fact that I can convene all of these people just because I asked, all of a sudden changes everything. And so that, that started there just in Philadelphia. And then Anquan Bolden later uh, that year reached out and said, hey, okay, this is in the height of the protest and stuff, but it's like, what's the next step? Are we gonna keep protesting and that's it? Are we gonna take some action? And he had some experience of going to Capitol Hill and. and lobbying for legislation. And so we went and we just met with a couple of legislators and just get, you get to hear how, you know, they move and the politics of it. But we realized that we got those meetings in like two weeks. And so the same meetings, we can get them like that. Whereas the activists who do this stuff day to day don't get those, that access. And so I realized very quickly, our role in this is to bring these voices to these people. And, it's, and we can do it no, no matter who you are. And I think that was, that's the most powerful part of our piece. And it's not that we are the activists or the experts, but we have the platform to be able to elevate those voices and actually put pressure on these legislators. Because when we show up, they want a picture. They want the photo op. Yeah. It's cool. We showing up with cameras, though. So whatever you say, we're going to hold you accountable to it. And it's, you know, I think athletes have to really step on their social capital, their ability to leverage media and put pressure on people to be able to affect local government. One thing, too, that a lot of guys are scared of. So I want to ask you, did it mess up the bread? That what you do off the field, did you think at any moment throughout your career, what you did off the field messed up your money? Uh, for me, money's never been a motivation for me. So I've never really 
calculated. I'm like, I'm sure I didn't get endorsements. It, it was a time, especially around 2016, where like, oh, endorsements gone. But here we are, 2022, and it's profitable now to be an activist and to, you know, to do it. So I think it's times have definitely changed. But I think back then it was not a you couldn't go into it thinking that you weren't gonna be touched. Like that's yeah. nobody ever changed anything and comes out scot free. Well, bro, you were all pro safety. What about the backup guard that wants to say something, but they can cut him any moment and go get another backup guard off the free agents market? Like, I've yeah. talked to guys that are like, 100%. Bro, I feel what you're saying, but. And I think that was the responsibility I felt in my voice because if I'm the all pro safety, the team captain, the voice of the locker room, and I'm saying it, then that allows a little bit of space for these guys at the bottom of the totem pole to be able to speak up. Because otherwise, if they speak up on their own, they just, yeah, disposable. Yeah. Get them out of there. But if all of a sudden you've got the stars of your league, like we saw it with uh, Roger Goodell, mm -hmm. all of a sudden you see the Odell Beckhams, the Saquon Barkleys of the league put out a video saying, we want you to say Black Lives Matter, we want you to do, apologize, we want you to do this. Next day, within yeah, 24 it. hours, got it. Back of the helmet, back of the end zone. Everything. Yeah. And it's like, if, if players understood the value and power that we had and, and, and co collectively, because it only works if you're collective. One player doing it is not going to do anything. You got the stars of your league coming together. All right, the league all of a sudden responds quickly. And it's like, it's that example that I'm like, people have to see. And it's like, we have to start asking for more than just pageantry, like just messaging and logos. Like use that same power to ask for some real change. And I think that's what we created the Players Coalition you know what I mean? Just to really give players a vehicle to do it. Because that's what I realized. It's, it's hard. We don't understand it. We play football. We need somebody to give us the facts. We need somebody to give us the breakdown, the environment, and a plan on how do we actually go from an idea to creating real change. And so we created that, that infrastructure in which play app, football players can come in. It's like wherever you want to do, whether it's you want to go talk directly to the police and some legislators, we got you. You want to write an op-ed or just some tweets? Cool. And that, and that has expanded just from like 12 players to now 12 different sports, 12 different professional leagues from baseball, soccer, even what the NBA did during the bubble where they negotiated and got money, that was based off of the example that we set. And so that's, those are the things that I'm like, there's a ton of potential here. Once we kind of break down uh, the fear that we have of the pushback, and understand that the collective voice is what protects you from individuals getting singled out. And it's gonna be some bodies, like people gonna get hit. It just is what it is. But. So, you know, you mentioned something earlier and, and it got me thinking uh, and it made a lot of sense. You mentioned distractions, mm -hmm. right? You mentioned how something can be done that changes our narrative, right? We, we wanted to bring the voice of the people, but you say shut up and dribble and now we're speaking more on our ability to have voices. Um, some distractions that can be seen was, you know, you mentioned the Players Coalition and it almost seemed like people made you, put you guys in opposition of what Colin Kaepernick started the protest for. Mm -hmm. And then obviously Eric Reed, his close friend, and you had an altercation, not even an altercation, had a discussion in the middle of the field. Do you feel like things like that distracted away from what you were trying to get done? Yeah. During that time? I think one of the things, if you go back and look at any interview I did around that time, if, if Kaepernick's name came up, um, I'm like, he started it. He's the reason we are here. He should be in the league. Like, that was my messaging. And I think one of the most embarrassing times of my entire career was this altercation with 
uh, Eric because I really could have avoided it. Like, whatever he's on is, is fine, but I didn't have to engage. And so it, it really, it reminds me of the Will Smith and Chris Rock thing. <laughs> yeah. Right? Where, it's like, <laughs> where it's like, you have your own individual moment where you're like, I'm, I'm looking, I'm like, this motherfucker's trying me. Like, yeah. you know, you got to deal with your own stuff, but really big picture for what we were trying to get accomplished, it really... Like, the worst thing, I woke up the next day in the photograph from the front of the paper is me and him face-to-face, right? And you got a bunch of white reporters talking, showcasing two black men who's supposed to be for the movement arguing and fighting. And I was like, that was embarrassing. Because I'm like, that is the antithesis of what I actually want to get done. Um, but, you know, you have your, you have your moments. <laughs> now, yeah, like, you have, you have your man moment. There, there, there's always that moment. Like, I tell people when I get to talk to them is that you're going to make some decisions based on respect. It's not necessarily going to be the best for your career, the best for your money. It's not going to be the best for your perception. But at some point at night, when we're alone and we look in the mirror, like, I got to look at that dude in the mirror and be like, okay, what you did today and what you stood for today was who you are. And I think that sometimes those things happen, but I think there's another distraction, at least to me, especially when we look at what the Rooney Rule has been and now how the Rooney Rule has been altered after someone like Brian Flores bringing suit against the NFL. And for, you know, those who don't know, it now includes women. And it's also about minorities in offensive assistant places, because if you can be an offensive assistant and they get you through the pipeline, then they expect that maybe one day you get to be a head coach. When you look at things like that, as much as you've dealt with the NFL, what is making a decision to add that to the Rooney Rule going to do to the actual purpose it was created? I think it dilutes the entire thing. And, and we have to understand the NFL's MO. They don't work off a of principle, they work off of PR. So if we want anything to change with them, people got to speak up. And I think when it comes to coaches, their approach to widen and expand the, the pool, it's like, while we definitely want women in the sport, and I think that needs to be a thing, I think it's disrespectful when you start to try to create an incubator position where we'll give you a year contract to be an offensive assistant to learn and prove yourself. It's just basically saying that all women in black coaches aren't qualified enough, so let's create a, tr a training program for them. That's not the case. We don't want a committee to search it. We just want the jobs, like, point blank. And I think until coaches start, black coaches really start to speak up and allow, because everybody's looking at players, like players should be kind of helping this out. But realistically, we got to hear from these coaches. You got Brian Flores, but now it's like, well, who else is joining this, right? Who, what other voices are going back this? And then Tom, players can Tom do Tomlin went and hired him, though. Was that, was that big? No, I mean, it's, it's big because he's protecting you know, his own, but it's also, he didn't come out and talk about his issue, right? He didn't talk about the lack of black coaches. He didn't talk about, and it's not to criticize him because he's, he's the guy, yeah. right? But it's also, we need those kind of voices to, to be frank and speak about it. It's the same thing we saw about the players. Like, if we want to actually make some kind of change, you got to speak up. And I think right now, the league is going to do whatever they can do to quiet the, the voices, and it's like, we can't allow small, you know, concessions like, uh, we'll create an offensive position thing, it'll be a one-year deal, and that'll, that'll fulfill the Rooney Rule. No, we want black head coaches. Simple as that. And it's like, if, you, if, you're, if your answer to us is that we're not qualified enough, that's bullshit. If you're telling us that uh, there's just, there's not enough, it's like, that's, that's all bullshit.
and, and all of us know as players, like we've had coaches that we know are qualified to be a, a head coach. We know it. And, it's, and the only thing that's stopping it is, is literally because we want to change in culture. We don't want to change in policy. We want to change in culture. Only way you change the culture is to change the motherfuckers in charge. Yeah, right. And so if, you, and if everybody's white and not black and, and it, their leadership doesn't reflect the diversity, how do you ever expect to change the minds of these people who, you know, are, are going to be in the same seats for years to come? And I think that's really the dynamic that we're dealing with. I mean, I think you make perfect sense in everything you've said. Uh, something jumped out at me that has nothing to do with the Rooney Rule. I think you hit that out the park. I want to know if you're going to be invited to a Drew Brees Hall of Fame speech. Because <laughs> I know there was some controversy yeah. and stuff he posted yeah. on Instagram throughout this whole thing. Yeah. You guys are cool? Yeah, we cool, man. I mean, I've known Drew literally since I came into the league. Uh -huh. And I think 2020 was a rough year for me. For everybody. For everybody. Yeah. And I think for me... It was like, you're in isolation, you see all the stuff that's going on, and then it was like, out of nowhere, you get somebody who you love, respect, like, says something as insensitive as he did, and it was like, I'm like, that was, that was a straw that broke the camel's back. And you realize, like, yo, everybody has to be held accountable. Like, everybody. And so I posted a, a video, real emotional, and trying to give, like, really my raw emotion of how I felt in the moment, how what he said, but... But it also brought him a lot of heat. And I'm like, while I didn't intend for that, right. it's also like, you know, it, it definitely caused some strain, but I think Drew understands at least where I came from, what I represent, what my voice is, and, and at least what my convictions are. And I understand like, oh, you're not perfect. I'm not, it's not a deficit, I'm not canceling you, but it's just like, this is what your words meant, or this is what they, how they felt to me. And we got to reconcile this. And we have many conversations, but, and, I, and I'm sure it's still a sore spot, but hopefully I still get the invite to, to, the, to the retirement party. Hey, you ain't going. <laughs> he definitely gonna get to go. Yeah, I'm definitely yeah, yeah, like, and then, like that's the, you know, that's the, the brother, the, the, the family, the, the different type of things we talk about inside of locker rooms. But I think those are times where you realize, you know what, it's conditional here. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, like those relationships are based on not only how we perform, but how we relate to one another. But I know for you, man, like you're huge into family. And, you know, I'm kind of, I got to cheat for this interview because we've done, you know, these things uh, multiple times. Uh, but part of that family is the way that you've been empowering women, women that are close to you, just a lot of your, your leadership group, a lot of your support group are women who have loved you and nurtured you for a long time. Why is that such an important thing to you? When we talk about leadership, and a lot of times we automatically put the man, man is supposed to be the head of the da, 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 da. And it's like, some of us is foolish, right. right? It's like, who is the best leader? And then for me, I come from a family that's, that's a matriarchy. Like, the women run my family. They keep everything in line. And I've had the, the pleasure of having friends, you know, being friends with black women who are bosses and who know things that I do not know. And so for me, it's not about, like, I could care less about your gender, I'm like, I want to put the best people in the best positions. And so for me, I've just found around me, there's been a ton of black women who are champions. And I'm like, who, when we talk about all of the things I'm doing off the field, I'm standing on their backs. This is all of them. Yeah. Like from my mom, my grandma, all the way down to my business partner, uh, Rolanda Johnson, my manager and, and uh, business partner, uh, Indian Robinson, like they are some 
phenomenal women. And for me, I realized, like, it, especially as black people, if we want the world to respect us at all as a whole, it's going to start with us respecting our women. Correct. Right? And it's like, until we get that mentality to be the majority, it's like we, we got work to do. We can't ever move forward as a society unless we're bringing our women with us. And most of the time, they need to be out front. Yeah. And, it's, 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 and that's, you know, counterculture sometimes, but realistically... Who's been holding our families together, all right? Who's been historically... Protecting us. Protecting us, doing all this stuff. When you mentioned Alton Sterling earlier in the interview, and one of my lasting memories, because I'm in Baton Rouge, and I'm on the phone with people, and we're trying to get things together and organize. The night that he was killed was the top... The first three rows of people protesting were women. And you could see all of the women standing in between the policemen and all of the black men. And that was a lasting image to me because it was as much as, as they felt devalued, not only by this society, but by us at many points. Their first thought was, let me stand in front of these men and protect them from the cops. And that was something that I will never forget just sitting in my house. And it made me cry because it was one of those moments where you understood that they deserve to be out front just many times we don't allow them to. Yeah, I mean, you look at all of those protests, it's gonna be black women. Like, it's gonna be some men, but but like, and, and when you talk about the devaluing of black women, we're the main culprits. That's what, yeah. We're the main culprits. And so it's like, to me, that's that's one of the things that we talk about an emergency in, a, in black culture. Like, we have to value black women because they're our most valuable asset. They've held down the families, they've protected us. When, when stuff happens to black men, black women are front line. When stuff is happening to them, it's black women who are front line. It ain't us, right? And I think half of that is fear. And then the other part of it is just self-centeredness. Like, we're always thinking, oh, we're the, we're the man, we're the provider, we need blah, 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 and really ignoring what's happening on the other half of our households and the other half of our community. That's some deep shit. I, I, like <laughs> I really do, man. You know what I'm saying? I got a strong black wife, you know what I'm saying? We all, we all do. How do you pick and choose? Because you say you hire your friends. Mm -hmm. And you said you, you've, you've hired uh, black women, but not even that. Just like, how do you choose who you put in charge of things that are very important yeah. and monetarily fragile to you? Because some people look, that's my homeboy from back in the day, and he's running your finances? Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, I've been with dudes like that. So like, you say you love to empower your people. Yeah. How do, you, how do you pick and choose? How do you vest who you put in charge of very important things in your life? So some of the best advice I've gotten, um, I reached out to Jay-Z one time. It took me a whole year. I'm a Jay-Z fanatic. Like, you called Jay? Yo, I'm like, it took me a whole year. <laughs> I'm like, I got his number. I'm like, I want to, I need to ask this man something. I don't know what. It took me a whole year to figure it out, and I asked him. I said, yo, what? You and LeBron, to me, are the gold standard of people who built empires with their people, right? Put people in place to really like grow with their homies, their friends, the, the people that they, they know. And I'm like, that's what I'm trying to do. So what's your best advice? And he's like, you know, without really knowing what you're getting into, he's like, you really already prepared to do it. You know what it is. You've been playing on teams your whole life. You know what it looks like when somebody's out of position, yeah. right? And it's like, most times you fail in leadership. You don't, you put, you just put your homie in any position and then you setting them up to fail. And then you're looking at your homie like, yeah, why, where my finances, man? It's like, but nah, you put him in that position. And so when I employ people, it's not about just 
the, the qualifications aren't just, you're my homie. It's also like, nah, I've seen you do this in professional ranks. So, Rolanda Johnson, I've known her since literally preschool. She was an auditor by trade, like deals with money, blah, 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 blah. She's like, let me see your finances. Like, I want to make sure that you straight. And I'm like, that's somebody I can, I can trust. You have a professional background. You know what you're doing, but also I can trust you. Same thing with uh, her husband, manage uh, targets and a few other things. I'm like, when we start franchising, he runs my franchises. And, and you, so you, it's not just randomly picking the people around you, but who's qualified. And if they're not qualified, how are you getting them the exposure to the education to then become your team? And so it's, it didn't start like that, right? It started with me on a, the same conveyor belt that every athlete goes on. You're surrounded by your agent, your marketing rep, X, Y, and Z. But when you start to look at, okay, all of these people that are eating off of me, which one of them can be replaced with somebody I know? Because I'm like, if because I'm not going to pay them and still got to pay and help, you know, people out over here. Instead of getting you a fish, I'd rather teach you how to fish. And if you already know how to fish, great. Fish for me. We can fish right. <laughs> right, right. You know what I'm and saying? That's, like, uh, that's another part of family, man. But, you know, it's been documented, you know, how close you are as a father with your girls, you know. And, and now, man... You 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 retire in a career change. Fred. Career change. But in career that career change, change we we often hope to have more time uh, for those for those things. I remember the last time we spoke, then you know they came in and you guys took pictures and you could see the love you know with co-parenting and for your girls. What are you most looking forward to as it pertains to your your actual family, your immediate family, your yeah. babies? I think that's the one of the things where, where everything else is kind of like aspirational, a little question mark behind it, going into the unknown, you know, with the career change. I think that's the one thing that's stable, right? It's like my relationship with my daughters. And I'm looking forward to the time to actually develop who they are as human beings. They're eight and four years old. And I'm starting to see stuff in them that remind me of myself. Like, I'm, I'm laughing at my, my eldest daughter because everything she does, she thinks she's great at it. Like, <laughs> she'll, she starts soccer, one practice, she don't even make a goal. She's just kicking it around, and she's like, Daddy, I'm great at soccer. <laughs> I'm like, and, and everything, like, my football mind wants to be like, you don't know what great is. Like, chill out. But then I'm, I'm realizing, like, damn, that's me. Right. I think I'm good at everything. I think I can do anything. And it's like, when you start to realize how much influence you have on your kids, it's like, that is got to be a major part of my life. Really, like, especially because I'm co-parenting. And so it's, it's like, that's a, that's a triggering area for me. It's like, I want to make sure my daughters want for nothing. Like, and they get everything they can from me. Every lesson I've learned, every ounce of love that I get or that I have, like, goes to them. And they never feel like the things that, the choices that I've made outside of them took away from their life. And I think at this point in time, I'm, I'm super excited. My, my daughter's in extracurricular activities. I'm a damn soccer dad now. Right, you know, bus driver. Awesome. Definitely a bus driver. I, I mean, my last question really quick is, um, which daughter is Nola? That's my youngest. You're the youngest. Yeah. You should ask her who, should, who you should retire at. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. <laughs> uh, you know what? I might, I might do it. She, yeah, she saw, she was born, actually, she was born two weeks before the NFC Championship game in 2017. So that Super Bowl year, she was, she was born. My youngest, my eldest was born in New Orleans. 
That might be that might be the Nola, deciding factor. I mean, factor. Nola only makes sense. I think I know what she would probably say. <laughs> you had a better career than me, but I ain't a Hall of Fame damn dad. There you go. Your ass got to learn how to put your feet up. Yeah. So when we ask you about it, you shout talking about businesses and structure and this and that and the, the activism, and I respect it all. Yeah. Bro, you say seven, you started playing? Yeah. Seven, seven you worked from old. seven years old to where you got now yeah. at 34, and you ain't putting your feet up? Nigga, I'm gonna write you a book. Please, I'm like, please, <laughs> send, send me the notes. They grind, bro. I done put my, nigga, I have three fishing boats. I done put my feet up. So, bro, you gotta learn, and it's a balance. I think we have a good balance between us yeah. and what we do and what they do. But, bro, you gotta have some time for yourself. You, you gotta appreciate the life you've built for yourself. I think I, I'm, I'm trying to get there, but I think, if, like, every year, Forget retirement, but just every offseason, first, that first month after the season's over, it's just abrupt. You go from your whole life being scheduled every second of your day to you do what you want to do. And it's like for a, I always struggle with that first month till I find a routine. You create your own kind of schedule. Believe it now. You struggle? Yeah. Man, party. Nah, Hang out. Man. Go it's... fishing. Grab something bad. Like... <laughs> Grab something bad. I knew that was coming. <laughs> I got ideas, man. I got stuff that I want to put into the world. And it's like, so when I don't have structure, it's just a bunch of things in my head and I don't know where to start. And it's like, so I'll, I'll have a block in the day that's completely free and it's hard to get stuff done because you just, you just don't have the structure. And so really that's where I'm at now is building the structure on my new life. Still putting in, you know, rest and relaxation, being able to enjoy my family. Because you're right, it's a, it's a, it's been a 13 year grind. More than that, if you add all the, you know, the entire journey. But at the same time, I'm 34 years old. It ain't time to chill, baby. Yeah, it ain't time to chill. That'll be the difficult challenge. Make sure you maintain the structure. Yep. And make sure you demand that people respect your time. Yeah. Because when you were an athlete, when you played. They respected that time, whatever it is you needed. Yeah. But quickly get used to speaking in past tense. I used to do this. I was this. I did that. You eventually figure it out. Yeah. yeah I think the. I think for for me, man, this was, this was everything I thought it would be. But I've done it with, with you more than once. But congrats on the career change. Appreciate it. Uh, absolutely phenomenal career, man. Watching you grow as a player and a person was a privilege. For somebody like me who had to grow as well. But man, before you go, go ahead. Ah, happy dad. Oh, happy dad. Cheers to young Mount who will join in the ranks of the career changed. Career changed, baby. I wore this Brady jersey just in case you decided to change your mind. Yo, I'm gonna be real. When he changed his mind, I was like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love them matchups with Brady. Cheers, fellas. Cheers, fellas. Mm. <laughs> Appreciate y'all. Oh, for sure. Yeah, all love, man. All love, I'm gonna you doing some respect, See, I've done it. I've done it with him so many times, dog. That I already knew. Hold up. Limitless. Take a stomach cow, pinning it. I father here to witness it. Got my people feeling militant. Way I'm feeling, got me up. On the mission, got me up. Knowing me, I got the key. On this vision, I can trust. Trust. Limitless. Take a stomach cow, pinning it. I father here to witness it. Got my people feeling militant.